This is Frontier Dialogues. Six minutes to keep up with people and projects that change the world of development in the context of COVID-19. Frontier Dialogues is a podcast that aims to spread solutions, lessons learned, and stories inside and outside UNDP. We continue with our special series dedicated to UN agencies' work in the Maldives, in a retrospective look at what this particular year 2020 has been like. This special series will be co-hosted by Hadi Hamid. Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Hadi Hamid and I am the Head of Solutions Mapping at the UNDP Maldives Accelerator Lab. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and to co-host this episode of Frontier Dialogues. This time, the turn is for one of the agencies with great relevance facing the current COVID-19 pandemic, the World Health Organization, WHO. On this occasion, we count on Dr. Arvind Mathur, WHO representative to the Republic of Maldives. Dr. Arvind Mathur is the WHO representative since August 2015. He has long experience with WHO Southeast Asia Regional Office and the country offices in India, DPR, Korea, Sri Lanka, and most recently, Bangladesh. He has been actively involved in policy advocacy, program management, relationship building, partnership development, and technical assistance to member states within the region and beyond. At a global, regional, and country level, he has been an active contributor to various expert groups and task force teams to formulate and implement technical guidelines, especially in maternal and child health, with courses in hospitalized administration, area development and management from the Asia Institute of Management in Malina, Philippines. Dr. Arvind, thanks for attending this call and welcome to Frontier Dialogues. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Arvind, I'm going to get us started with the first question. And I think, you know, to begin with, everybody can agree that 2020 is a year like no other. The pandemic um, has affected everything. But first and foremost, it is a global public health crisis. And WHO has been on the forefront of responding to this crisis everywhere. And as we're coming to a close of the year, um, could you share with our audience what your reflections are on the year? both at a professional and personal level. Uh, thank you, Caddy. And um, you have said it um, that 2020 has been um, an incredible year for everyone. Uh, and I could reflect, uh, you know, like to begin with um, a mix of professional and personal reflection that uh, little did I realize when I started off on the 1st of January uh, that the something which we were so closely following up uh, you know, like to advocate for investing in public health and uh, with the government, you know, like uh, it would prove to be so very apt for the 2020. Uh, first January, we first heard about um, through the International Health Regulation Network of uh, a novel disease, which has been reported um, in parts of China. Uh, and 6th of January, actually first in the Maldives, uh, we had the first reported case of the measles, which is post the elimination of measles uh, was confused to be a, a measles outbreak. Uh, so here I was in the very early in 2020, uh, dealing with the first outbreak. And on the 7th of January, I received the first uh, detailed note uh, from my regional office about uh, a novel coronavirus, uh, which was being uh, detected in uh, China. And uh, I had, uh, you know, like already because of the outbreak, ongoing outbreak we had in uh, kind of triggered the Health Emergency Coordination Committee. Uh, and I had a meeting with the, uh, the then health minister and I appraised him and informed as part of my responsibility on what is happening uh, in terms of a new disease that is being reported. And, uh, you know, like, in fact, in the deep in my heart, uh, I continue to pray that uh, it is something like a, a viral disease which will be self-contained or something. Uh, but then I was advocating and telling the minister that it would be very, very important for us to be prepared. Uh, and let's really look into, you know, like carrying out our risk assessment as early as we could, uh, given that Maldives is a tourism-based economy. 
and I think I would reflect onto this. The reason I'm saying this thing that uh, at times the worst of the fears become true. And today that when we are in the midst of pandemic and as we're coming closer to the 2020, uh, you know, how devastating it has been to say that more than 60 million uh, reported cases and more than one and a half million precious lives have been lost and who would not have been affected, uh, not only uh, in terms of the numbers, but the faces behind these numbers, uh, the economies, the families, the people who have lost the dear ones, uh, physically, mentally, socially, economically, it has been really uh, you know, demanding, testing, trying for everyone. And we at WHO and me personally leading the team, uh, I mean, on one side, it has been a personal battle to really make sure that you keep your calm and you keep your, um, you know, your, your own mental health uh, up while you are motivating and encouraging your team. And mind you, in the month of January, I was still acting uh, resident coordinator as well to be able to steer the entire team and to keep them informed and, and, and engaged uh, in, in the entire uh, possible potential uh, challenge that we were facing or going to be facing in the country. Uh, just to uh, kind of say that, um, over a period of uh, all these months, you know, like one uh, on one side, professionally, we have seen and grown and learned and understood about the virus and ability to control it. But I think personally, all of us have learned a lot. I mean, I have learned to live with a new normal that today, instead of sitting face to face, we are actually virtually recording this conversation, a new way of life that all of us have embraced, the new way of life for children, the new way of life for people. Uh, you know, for learning, for uh, educating, for making things and, uh, you know, like, and one would have learned the, uh, or would have gone back to many of the softer skills uh, one would have forgotten in her or his own life. And same happened with me, you know, during these periods, the terminologies of lockdowns and how you would cope up with the stress, how would you cope up with the uncertainty. I think today I could say personally and professionally both I'm I'm resilient, I am a more patient and calmer, uh, but also more determined inside. And I'm also more, uh, you know, focused that there is importance of, uh, you know, like being prepared, but also importance of staying connected. Um, and the value of, um, you know, our relationships has become so very, very critical. Uh, relationships, not only in terms of the family, but in the larger community that we all live in and the society that we all live in, in terms of, uh, you know, mutually supporting one another, that has become such critical and important uh, uh, aspect of that life that we are uh, living in. And last reflection that I would say that I think both personally and professionally, I probably couldn't have imagined the, the whole significance of solidarity, the significance of working together, the partnership, the unity. This is a situation the modern eras, the biggest and pandemic uh, that cannot be resolved by one person or one entity or one, in, one uh, agency. And that actually, the countries need to come together, people need to be together in a small manner or in a big manner. It's been a major learning. And I think the drive and the desire to work together is even more today uh, than probably what it was earlier. So many reflections and many learnings and uh, you know, like, and also this determination and commitment and, uh, uh, and resolve to do better and to support the country, to support the people even more and more in their quest to control, but get out of this uh, even more in the days to come. Let's focus a little bit more on the WHO response to the COVID-19 in the Maldives. Thank you. Uh, as I said that, uh, you know, we were already in month of January itself uh, that we started off, uh, given that uh, I believe that it was important for, um, for country uh, to be very, very well prepared uh, for any, any uh, outbreaks, any, uh, you know, uh, situation. Uh, while we were discussing about this virus, we know it's a, we knew it was a coronavirus. We have had preparedness earlier. We have had uh, you know situations when we did the uh, risk assessment for SARS or the the MERS, the the Middle Eastern uh, Respiratory Syndrome virus. They're all coronaviruses, and uh, you know they, we were we were kind of sure that there would be similar characteristics. 
But when I was referring to that, I met with the minister and I requested that we need to have a rapid assessment and that proved to be one very important step because that rapid assessment early in the month of January soon made us realize that we need to start working on points of entry because Maldives, as I said, is a tourism-based economy with, the, uh, with our friendly country, China, being one of the very important source of tourists. And there have been direct connections between the province, which started reporting the cases, and Maldives. So we needed to strengthen the point of entries, and that is when we started off. So from the risk assessment, to start looking into how do we make the uh, screening at the point of entry uh, stringent so that we are really started to put some actions, uh, you know, as early as in uh, January. And we were then in a position to advise the, uh, the ministry, the government, uh, you know, like to start working on what is called as the response guide. So, you know, this, this thing helped us uh, very early action, very timely action way back in January, because we could actually work with Ministry of Health. We could trigger the Health Emergency Operation Center uh, as early as January, so that multi-sectoral response could be discussed. We brought the technology to the government called Go Data, by which they could start playing with the data, the information that as it starts pouring into them. You know, that gave us a very good lead time. So, you know, as early as uh, January and February, we were already working on a preparedness plan, on a response plan. And mind you, at that time, Maldives did not have the diagnostic capacity in the country to detect uh, uh, the COVID-19 or coronavirus at that time. It was, uh, you know, like I would say a game changer that proved to be when I went to the minister and I said that uh, we could bring the technology and it would enable the Maldives to diagnose the cases in Maldives itself. Because what credit to the country that the first 20 cases which were diagnosed in, in the tourists, we had to send the samples overseas and it took us six days to get the results. So one side, they managed those 20 tourists away from the communities in the resorts in the islands that they were in and prevented the community transmission and they agreed for our advice. Secondly, they agreed to uh, accept the technology that WHO was able to bring. And I would say that technology, timely technology transfer for lab diagnosis became a turning point and, and became one of the critical strategy that I would say has been what we've been advocating, uh, testing, 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 and you know, like overall uh, test, track, isolate, um, manage the cases, which became the hallmark of the entire uh, pandemic control strategy for us, in addition to the risk communication, because by that time, uh, we had that entire strategic plan in place. So I could say that by end of February, we had been able to establish the lab capacity uh, in the primary, uh, the premier institution in IGMH, and we kept on building and expanding. And that's where I keep referring to the, uh, you know, like to the government's uh, acceptance and their commitment, and also bringing the resources to expand the diagnostic capacity that on one side, uh, WHO was able to bring the technology, but also almost 90,000 diagnostic kits. But then we also brought the other technology, which is called uh, the gene expert, uh, for a very rapid and a fast turnaround time for diagnosing the, uh, the COVID-19. And uh, thanks to our colleagues in UNDP who helped us bring the cartilages. So as of today, you know, we have supported the country with the establishment of not only the diagnostic capacity in the center, but the two regions, one in Artu and other in Kuludukushi, you know, the two laboratories have been established, PCR enabled with the WHO support. We have brought almost 90,000 uh, PCR test kits to the country. We have got 10 gene expert machines, which are now deployed uh, in the regional hospitals to diagnose at a regional level, and also the 50,000 gene expert cartilages that have come. So, you know, in terms of that diagnostic capacity itself, it was very, very critical for us to build. And around the time, I must say that uh, having the RC in place and then looking into how the cohesive, concerted, UN response could be there, and uh, and that is where the as UNCT we rallied around, we came together, and then WHO being designated as the COVID coordinator uh, for the UN system, but coordinating the multi-agency, the UN support and response to the government, and credit to every partnering agency 
that kind of stepped up, uh, you know, on one side to provide the support and on the other side to mobilize the resources for additional kits or for additional supply for communication, for risk communication. And by the time uh, when we got the first local case reported in the month of April, the uh, you know, it was already, uh, you know, a well, I would say, oiled response, uh, understanding that all UN partners also had. And when we get, went into the lockdown, I would say we were all together in it as the UN family. And uh, the, the UN crisis team between the UNRC and the WHO uh, was functioning and we could access the expertise, be it of UNDP, of UNICEF, of UNFPA, but also non-resident agencies like UNOPS and all. And I think that was an important role that we played uh, as we were then designated by RC as the chair of health and wash working group that we kept on uh, meeting, interacting, mobilizing and coordinating uh, the response and the support to the government. Because one thing which was very clear, even the ministry started realizing that it is not going to be possible for them alone. That's when, you know, like our advocacy worked when we moved from health emergency operation center to a national emergency operation center. And that required a different level of response by the time the, the lockdown happened, actually. So we were looking into a very rapid pace, rapidly evolving situation. I had brought the regional expert, you know, on the surveillance, on contact tracing. We were to develop the standard operating procedures. We needed to convince the government for, you know, designating the facilities for quarantining. We needed to advocate and to convince them for isolation. It's not easy. They're all resource intensive processes. You know, then we also needed to make them understand, and that's where the technical advisory group played an instrumental role. Uh, that's the local technical experts who were with the WHO then advocating for it. You know, to agree to have a dedicated ICU facility in a new Dharamavanta hospital was a, was a wonderful decision by the government. And then to agree that they would make newer medical isolation facility, then the decision to have a decentralized uh, you know, intensive care facilities as well, designated COVID facility. While the reason why I'm sharing this, because at the same time, I was very sure that we should not neglect greater Mala area. You know, it, it was something which uh, first week of April, I made a presentation in the National Emergency Operation Center because the number of cases were not there. There was no reported cases and people had started lowering the guards. And I went and I said that if you are thinking that the virus is not around, you are mistaken. So let's not be complacent. This is the time for us to be very clear that there would be a slippage and it would happen. And 15th April, we were in lockdown. So we had done the preparedness for Greater Male area with the Ministry of Health, the, the NEOC. There was an entire Greater Male plan which was developed. We had done the tabletop exercises. We have done the drills to the extent of about the food delivery, to the extent how would the command system will take place. So that kind of hand-holding, that kind of a close working is what WHO can be very proud that I can say today that we have been able to steer. So across the different pillars, I could say from point of entry to the laboratory, uh, to the whole issue about risk communication, to the operational logistics, to critical care, because unless we were able to train large number of healthcare providers, you know, to provide critical care when it would be needed, nurses, lab technicians, other technicians in the ICUs, the doctors, the ECG technician, all of them needed the critical care training. We needed to bring, we had facilitated overseas route, remote interactions, did all of those online training for people who were never used to online training factors. So that itself resulted into a lot of going back and forth. And I can say that with the time difference between the different parts of the world, it has been 24 seven working for WHO team here. Uh, we have not uh, closed the office uh, for one day and even um, during Ramadan, nothing, no holidays. Uh, since the time that we have been into the lockdown, I would say we have been at the front line, almost like a frontline worker with the government and while coordinating and bringing together all of the, the evidence on one side, the technical support on the other side, mobilizing resources, you know, like bringing the PPE and hats off to my, uh, I would say fellow partnering agency that every one of you has stepped up 
uh, to bring the PPE because I kept on advocating that a health worker is the most precious commodity or an entity for us in this response. Please bring as much as one can because we need to protect our health workers. You know, over a period of time, you know, I feel very uh, satisfied, very kind of um, uh, happy at the same time that our the government has been so forthcoming, led by the, uh, from the front, by His Excellency President himself, I would say, along with the, the entire cabinet of his ministers. The reason I'm saying and I'm naming this because um, this has been an unprecedented whole of government and whole of society response that Maldine has put in. And I'm very proud that WHO's technical assistance had been accepted, had been put in place. The WHO advice and recommendations have been really taken up for actual implementation. And they have taken into account that uh, every uh, evidence that we have brought, they mull it over, they discuss it and contextualize it to put it into, uh, into the decision. Um, National Emergency Operation Center, scaling it down back to the Health Emergency Operation Center, a situation where the top leadership chairs the meeting and coordinates and hears us. We have been asked for presentation by Majlis, which we have provided. So, you know, all aspects of surveillance, contact tracing, care, diagnostics, uh, operational support, logistics, human resources for health, I think this has been one, one time that WHO with the, with the team that I have, which I'm very proud of, we have stepped up to be with the government and with the people at every step. And now I could say that uh, today, um, you know, while all the things are almost like a well-oiled machinery that it is functioning, but probably WHO acted at with the technical assistance as a two drops of that oil that kept the machinery running. And today as we are, uh, you know, like looking into uh, the stage where the COVID-19 vaccine is likely to be a reality soon. Uh, I'm very proud to say that the government and the Ministry of Health is very geared up at this juncture uh, that we are looking at uh, with regards to the COVID vaccine. And there again, I feel very proud of what we have been able to uh, facilitate for the, you know, for the government and the people of Maldives, uh, because Maldives, uh, you know, traditionally is a high middle income country. Uh, even if during COVID it became a zero income country, as it's been saying, taking the, I think the worst hit with regard to the GDP, but classification wise, it still remains a high middle income country and it wouldn't have been eligible for the benefits that Gavi eligible country, as we call them, or the global fund uh, eligible countries and all. So we needed to actually advocate a lot and then worked with the partners to make it as, uh, you know, included it as an AMC, which is the advanced market condition, the category, uh, which actually benefited many island countries, which were not necessarily a low middle income country. And this new category of AMC, actually, the advanced market committee countries became a reality in the case of the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. And I'll talk about that uh, a bit more later. But the whole idea why I'm sharing is that our role, not only as a hand uh, holding support, uh, but also as a policy advocacy and a policy advocate not internally within the country, but even externally uh, to partners to make sure uh, that the, as much possible, the benefits come to the country has been uh, something which has kept us extremely, extremely busy and uh, alongside to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, like when we were talking about the services, we don't lose on to some of the, you know, like natural uh, dropouts, which happens is with regard to the essential health services on one side, so while we were talking about COVID, 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 I needed to blow a trumpet and to say, don't forget essential services. Don't forget your people, your patients with hypertension, diabetes, uh, cancer, and all. They need their treatment. We needed to come out with some modality to make sure their medicines are delivered. You know, the government actually stepped up these kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, processes a lot. You know, I also had to then shout at one from the very beginning to say that don't forget mental health and psychosocial support. In fact, the first lot of people who were quarantined from their travel from China, all the travelers who came back way back in the month of uh, first third week of January or fourth week of January, actually we initiated the psychosocial support from that time onwards and made a big advocacy that this is a group that needs to be really supported and we need to provide that support and it became uh, such a demand, such a challenge that it needed to be really looked into 
And we traditionally, as a partner for mental health, that have been supporting the Center for Mental Health at ITMH, but also the government for legislation, for policy program and all, it becomes a natural extension. But it was also two months. And I was very glad that partners stepped up and we had uh, our colleagues and our uh, civil society organizations kind of say, no, 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 we would be able to take it up for implementation while the technical support could come from uh, WHO. So in a way, I could say that uh, very overwhelming um, kind of experience of uh, leading uh, and supporting and advocating for COVID-19 response in the Maldives. But at the same time, I could say a lot of credit to one side, to the entire government, for the whole of government, the people, the resilience that they have shown, but also credit to the entire UN country team uh, for being a very cohesive, very concerted, uh, very committed, collaborative uh, team to be able to respond uh, collectively with the resources, I think unprecedented amount of resources that all together, in terms of even the money, I would say that we have been able to mobilize. Uh, that's quite substantive actually. Uh, and I think uh, it's, it is continuing. Uh, the, the response is not finished. The pandemic is still around. The virus is still happening. The, the cases are still being reported. Uh, so it is going to be a continuing and I would say a relentless journey still for the years to come. Yeah. Great. I'll stop um, here. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Arvind. That has uh, given us a really good idea of the magnitude of the response nationally. But moving on from the national to the global, um, how would you say that this pandemic has shaped or, or rather reshaped WHO's role in the international arena? Uh, yeah, actually, Kadi, it would be very fair for us to say that we didn't actually need a pandemic to reaffirm the WHO role as a guardian of public health as it used to be called. But I believe this pandemic has certainly reiterated, reaffirmed, the WHO as the global leader and as the international leader for public health. Uh, the organization that talks about, uh, you know, like anything based on the science, brings science-based solutions and together then talks about solidarity. I think we have, uh, the pandemic as internationally has proven uh, the WHO uh, as, as an organization where, you know, with the vision that we have uh, from our director general and our regional director, it proves to be very true because that's what is there in our global program of work, which we say uh, promote health, keep the world safe and serve the vulnerable. And I think pandemic proved that we have put those in action. We have made sure that all of these things are seen uh, in terms of how the role of WHO, you know, internationally got further reaffirmed when the leaders of the world have come forward and have stood and to say that we value the organization and incredibly value uh, the phenomenal staff that the organization had. And I think there has been um, unwavering uh, support from the international community, uh, from the people, from the leaders, the governments to the WHO, the way that, you know, very early, uh, transparently that we started sharing the information we started, uh, we brought the entire classification or grading of the emergencies. You know, the first, the highest level of emergency was declared by WHODG uh, on the 30th of January, when there were very few cases outside China and only 150 deaths. I mean, today I talk about 1.5 million deaths. So the DG declared, so that is the primacy of the WHO technical uh, support or the technical strength that I could say that we build on our strength of evidence, we build on our strength of networking, we built on our, um, you know, transparency on the base on our entire science base, science driven solution. And, you know, like bringing the, the power of neutrality, the convening power that today we could say that there is a whole network of uh, researchers uh, clinicians and uh, scientists who are working together with WHO, uh, you know, from the day of sequencing the genome of virus, which is what led to the diagnostic test or resulted into development of a vaccine later on. 
I think WHO had proven that it is the most unbiased and a neutral uh, player in the field of public health and international health. And I think uh, I would say the entire in international community in the arena is now looking into uh, the way that the WHO talks about even SDG3 for that matter, uh, which way we are looking into the health and well-being and uh, the universal health coverage, which is the commitment that we have in terms of the WHO and promoting health when we talk about, you know, like the entire pan the, the ongoing pandemic of the non-communicable diseases that WHO is a sole advocate or the major challenge of the international public health arena today, the antimicrobial resistance that we as WHO, as an agency being talking about and to say, how do we tackle this? So all of these have also been brought you know, on one side into the centrality and on the other side, the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted into reforming the advice WHO has been giving that this, we are tackling this pandemic, but this may not be the last pandemic. And we want us to be better prepared. None of the countries will be prepared as much as we wanted, be it uh, the advanced economies or be it the developing economies. I mean, we have the maximum cases reported from the countries where we have seen the maximum, uh, you know, like the biggest or the quote unquote strongest health system. So all of this, you know, our advice, our voice uh, as an international health organization responsible for public health is probably today better heard, uh, is better accepted. And I do hope, uh, you know, in the days to come, uh, every member country then agrees to invest even more and more uh, in the health of the people. And I think that is what I feel very uh, happily uh, kind of acceptance of the WHO as that international lead organization for the, for the health. That's a bigger, bigger change, that acceptance, the greater acceptance, the greater credibility is a big change for us. Yeah. Thanks. Considering this comprehensive panorama about the COVID response, what are the lessons learned from 2020? Uh, Fernando, there are many, many lessons, in fact, and I think some of it I have reflected, but the first lesson that I would say that uh, I think it has brought one thing very clear that we need to act together when such a situation comes. I think collaboration, partnership, and I cannot overemphasize this as uh, even more today in terms of working together. And, you know, like if I, I mean, it's not only working together at a local level, even more so internationally. I think the word that I'm using a bit broadly, solidarity, uh, and that's what DG and RD uh, have been referring to uh, repeatedly with the WHO, because we need that global solidarity. We need that, uh, it's a big lesson for us. The second thing which I would say in terms of the lesson is, you know, looking into the pandemic from the, from the 2020, the, you know, lack of preparedness by countries, as I just said, was so very overtly felt by everyone. And that brings me to a bit of technical point, what we call as the international health regulation. The international health regulation is a legal treaty which is binding the member countries. And I think it is very, very critical that the countries seriously invest in complying to international health regulation and build their capacities. And that's what I mean by that we need to be prepared for the next pandemic. We don't wish it to happen ever, but I think preparedness is the key. Unless and until we are investing in preparedness and readiness, because the thing is, otherwise our vulnerabilities are getting exposed every now and then. And I'm fond of saying one thing which says that one lesson that I have learned is that, that our, all of our common vulnerabilities should be the source of solidarity. And I think that's an important one for us to understand that, uh, you know, not nobody is safe unless everybody is safe. And that is true for people. That is true for countries as well. And I think together, collectively, we need to really tackle it. We need to really take it forward. Uh, and other lesson that uh, which I would reflect on is the continuing need for investing in public health. You know, as I was reflecting too, that the bigger economies and the stronger economies had probably one of the best systems, but curative, clinical, hospital-based systems. 
they got exposed because the public health was not that strong there. And this is where we have been advocating, even in the Maldives, and the lesson has been, and that's what I meant that I didn't realize that when we were talking in 2019 uh, to invest in public health and agreed, uh, the government declared the 2020 as a year of public health, uh, that there was so much of public health work which was coming. And today, I mean, not only for the pandemic of COVID-19, but as I said, prevention, prevention, promotion, all become so very critical when we talk about lifestyle related diseases, the food-based diseases and so and so forth. So very, very important lesson that we need to continuously uh, strengthen the public health systems in any country, Maldives included. And another lesson that I'd say that we learned, in fact, two parts. One, I felt that the criticality of uh, maintaining and continuing essential health services during the pandemic period and to let people feel assured that the services will be made available and facilities will be made available in a manner which is safe for them. And that trust that has built, been able to be built, you know, that has been a very, very important factor for people to then follow the advices that we, have, we were able to come out. And, and I think it is very, very important to highlight at this juncture uh, the great role that technology has played in our ability on one side to tackle pandemic, but on the other side to keep the machinery running. I mean, if the Wi-Fi was not uh, on, we wouldn't have been having this conversation, the internet availability, the electricity, the, the entire supply system that has been made running, uh, the frontline working with the cleanliness, the garbage and all whatnot. But technology had played an instrumental role uh, in our ability to deal with the situations even more. Uh, I mean, in technology in terms of the information, but also, um, you know, like even going out of the boxes with regards to, uh, you know, like uh, rapidly finding a solution uh, when we were talking about diagnostics, for example. Mm -hmm. So all of those in a way are, I would say, key lessons uh, that I could, uh, I could uh, talk about. And the last one is that the way that the international community but also the local community uh, have come forward, have shown their resilience and acceptance to, um, you know, like advises to, to embrace the new normal, the change. It has certainly been not possible uh, for children to be confined to houses, but credit to them that they accepted, they understood, uh, they heard us, and then they followed it. So all of this has been a great learning and a few key lessons that I could share uh, today with, with everyone. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Arvind. Um, and now, looking ahead, could you talk about the COVAX initiative and what we could expect from that in 2021? Thank you. I mean, the way ahead, certainly, you know, in terms of um, uh, on one side, we will continue to be in the new normal. And on the other side, uh, the science has brought us hope. And uh, I can only say that uh, when I was once uh, hearing my director general, he said that we can, we have lost a lot of things, but we cannot lose hope. And uh, credit to the scientists that from the time that the virus was detected and the way that they started decoding the genome, uh, very soon there was a light in terms of that there could be a possibility of working on a vaccine. And that's where the WHO played that stellar role of bringing the scientists together, the researchers together, and to say that, can we start working on the vaccine? Uh, it has been an unprecedented movement with regard to uh, the effort that globally the scientists have put in together, where we are talking about um, you know, like uh, the WHO together with the member countries came out with uh, number one, which is called as the ACT, which is access to COVID tools. Uh, and alongside then there was, uh, you know, like soon there was an accelerator, which was also launched. And the whole idea of access to COVID tool and ACT accelerator, because it has three pillars. And one of them is diagnostics and the lab tests that I have already talked about. Uh, the second pillar is about treatment, the therapeutics, the drugs, the regimes, and the trials that are going on. And third important pillar, which is a critical pillar, 
is actually the vaccine pillar. Now, in the vaccine pillar of the ACT Accelerator, a number of international partners were mobilized, uh, which includes the WHO, uh, Gavi, uh, the coalition, uh, the CEPI that we call it. Uh, all of that came together and they created a facility which is called the COVAX facility. And that became the vaccine pillar of the, uh, of the accelerator. And the COVAX facility actually uh, then, you know, like kind of committed to that they would be bringing and mobilizing uh, as a risk pooling mechanism, the manufacturers, suppliers, and the countries which are the, which are the, the clientele and bring together 2 billion doses of the vaccine as and when it is available. But by end of 2021, 2 billion doses will be available to the entire world. Now, the speed of vaccine development was also something which was a concern, but then WHO played that role, as I was saying, to ensure that there are these processes which actually takes around five to 10 years for a vaccine to develop. But then we were able to do without compromising on quality, safety, and efficacy, we were able to do them concurrently. And WHO would only certify or a pre-qualify vaccine when it is proven to be safe and effective. Of course, cost-effective in a way as well. And I could say that between, uh, you know, like the time that uh, uh, the, the, the art, the ACT Accelerator was initiated and the COVAX facility, we have today 187 countries or economies which have signed for the COVAX vaccine, and they will benefit from this COVAX vaccine, uh, COVAX facility. And these include the 92 lower income countries and also the, uh, as I said, the advanced um, uh, market commitments, which are like countries like, uh, like the Maldives uh, and others. And the whole effort has been the, that we bring in by as and when the, country, the, the COVAX facility brings the vaccine, which are, you know, there are more than 200 candidate vaccines which are going on at this moment at any point of time at a trial. Out of which I would say that around 30, 30 vaccines are in, uh, uh, are in human trials and 10 are in the advanced stages of the phase three human trials that we talk about. And then we look into the basket of vaccines because these vaccines is what COVAX is able to um, you know, like do because we can use different types of vaccines. Uh, we, the COVAX is then working with the, with the partners like uh, not only the WHO, but also uh, UNICEF, World Bank, ADB, uh, Global Fund. And the whole idea is that we kind of prepare the countries for receiving the vaccine. It is the, the whole period, the whole uh, 2020, I would say, has been unprecedented from that point as well that the science has evolved so rapidly that in this short period of 12 months, we are talking about having a vaccine available. And that is something in the first quarter, we are hoping that there would be some doses that would be available that can cover the priority target population. And the reason why I'm using the word priority target because the WHO has recommended for equitable distribution of vaccine. We do not wish uh, vaccine nationalism uh, to be propagated at all. And that's why the COVAX vaccine facility has come to be in, in existence. And this is where, you know, like we are looking at the first 3%, which are the health and frontline workers. Uh, so the first lot that could be available from COVAX facility would cover this 3%. The second lot uh, or the concurrent lot, I would say, from the COVAX vaccine facility would be covering the remaining 17% which are elderly people, people with underlying conditions like hypertension, diabetes, heart problem, and so on and so forth. So the 20% of the population would be covered through the vaccine that would be available at a very, very cost-effective price from the COVAX facility. And the small, I mean, the small economies and the low-income countries or the low-middle-income countries would even be uh, eligible for the, uh, or including the Maldives because it's an IDA, uh, eligible country that they can use their uh, overseas financing to cost share uh, the vaccine as well. And currently what we are looking at it that uh, uh, while the, I mean, there are other developments in terms of the vaccine and we know that the vaccine coming from uh, Pfizer, Moderna, another one and the AstraZeneca vaccine are the top leader. And, you know, like uh, through the COVAX uh, facility also, 
they would be available. And WHO, uh, as I said, has been maintaining and leading. Uh, there is a landscape of candidate vaccines. Uh, more the number, I mean, like 200 candidate vaccine is a sign because otherwise, generally, uh, the vaccine success rate is around 10%. So it is unprecedented that already we are talking about at least 10 candidate vaccines, which are likely to be uh, in a situation where the manufacturers have already started asking for pre-qualification or have started writing to the regulatory authority for emergency uh, use listing. And one hopes uh, in 2021, uh, you know, like small proportion by the first quarter, but certainly by mid 2021, there could be a situation where we could say that the vaccine could be available to the countries to cover their first 20% of the target population. And to that extent, we are also uh, working with the government, with the country, including in the Maldives, to prepare the country for uh, receiving the vaccine because it's a new vaccine. Uh, we do not have the entire age group. We don't know the cold chain, but we are preparing the cold chain, for example, the WHO as technical partner, but also providing the lead material support and bringing the cold chain equipment from center to region to island and also building the capacity now. We are starting to roll out, have developed uh, what is called as the vaccine readiness assessment tool. Uh, and that has been done, which is called Virat. Based on to this, there are tasks which have been worked out. We are working together as a the governing structure that the government has been able to put together. We have the National Health Emergency Coordination Committee as an overall coordinating committee. Then we have a technical advisory group with WHO and technical advisory group of immunization of country. Then we have a national steering committee, committee, which is also seeing the operational part. And we have a logistic groups as well. So we have put together this governing structure in the Maldives. We are preparing the cold chain. And as a part of the operational plan, we will be training the human resources for this. And we are working on to the further logistics because the whole effort right now is to look into the vaccine, which would be having the cold chain requirement generally of two to eight degrees centigrade, that would be the most preferred one. And the current dose schedule would be the two doses of vaccine uh, one month apart or something like that. That is what would be uh, the recommendation that is coming up at the moment uh, for the vaccine, which is part of the COVAX facility. And I believe uh, that would be what I was referring to, that um, that is the hope, uh, because that would bring the, uh, the, the end of pandemic or closing the pandemic nearer uh, than what it would have been anticipated. But one thing which is very clear that it is, uh, the world will not be able to produce sufficient vaccine in one go for everyone. We need to prioritize, we need to really look into the high risk population, we need to look into the target population and as manufacturers kind of increase their manufacturing capacity. So COVAX facility to that extent is a boon uh, to the economies like Maldives. At the same time, we definitely encourage the government to either ask for more vaccine from COVAX, but also bilaterally to many other countries which are either manufacturing countries or the ones, those who have invested in developing the vaccine. And those negotiations I'm aware are already going on. So be it in India or be it in the Europe, uh, there would be negotiations and discussions because India being the manufacturing hub uh, for drugs and vaccines would play that important role. And, uh, and we are looking at uh, that collaboration uh, and support by India regionally and globally. And at the same time, we do hope that the COVAX facility would roll out uh, its products to the countries uh, in the first quarter of 2021. And then uh, we should be in a position to be vaccinating people uh, in the second quarter uh, as we progress uh, in 2021. Linked to this is that Vaccine arrival does not mean uh, that we don't have uh, the actions which are, you know, proven uh, to be protective and preventive. They should be forgotten. I think it is important till the biological vaccine comes, we continue to practice the social vaccine. And to me, the social or public health vaccine is the same masking, distancing, hand hygiene, avoiding crowded, confined, closed places, you know, avoiding spitting on the roads and you know, cough and respiratory hygiene and etiquette. So that needs to be continued in the days to come till we are very, very sure 
uh, that this is either an embraced part of the new normal or we kind of go back to the old normal without a mask kind of a thing. So till that time, it is very important that the people continue to follow these uh, practices and, and, and adhere to these as well. Dr. Arvind, thank you so much for everything that you have shared. Um, in this episode, you have reflected on how this pandemic has shown how we are connected to each other. Really, um, you know, starting from, well, how we are connected to, e connected to each other, but also how everything is connected to each other, starting from the health of our ecosystems to the health of our economies, to our own bodily and mental health. And most importantly, you also reflected on the importance of the health of our relationships. So, you know, really um, a lot that you have shared with us, um, a lot that you have reflected on, but I also want to ask you if you have any parting thoughts, any parting comments before we sign off. My, uh, Kari, thank you so very much. And I think you've said it uh, so aptly. I think my just parting thought would be in relation to uh, what I just said that, um, you know, believe in, in the simple measures that are there for us to follow. Uh, I always keep saying that let us make the uh, chain of uh, informed people for informed decision, which will help us break the chain of transmission of the virus. We need to just let the virus not come close to us. And I think if we have, uh, you know, informed choices, informed decisions, based on the reliable source and trust in the system, uh, trust in the, in the advice that, the, that is being given to the people and, and they adhere to it, I think we can, we can certainly overcome this situation. And uh, I am very confident that the resilience that the people of Maldives have over a period of time have shown, uh, this time as well, they have shown exemplary resilience. And I'm very, very proud that the way that they have handled things and uh, I'm sure the, the, the sun is going to be brighter tomorrow for sure. Well, thank you, Dr. Arvin, for your comprehensive panorama about the situation and especially for uh, your standing work as the head of WSO, lead agency in the response to this global crisis. And thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Let's meet up in the next Frontier Dialogue.